Welcome to Perimenopology, where we explore and converse about what it means to transition out of the young, hot, fertile, and fuckable box that our society labels as most worthy when you were socialized as a woman. Around here, we're all about body literacy and talking about the topics that society tells us are unimportant or inappropriate. I'm Michelle Kapler, reproductive acupuncturist, Chinese medicine practitioner, and master feminist confidence coach, and you've got episode number 22. Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for listening. Before I get into today's episode, I want to make a quick announcement. This episode is brought to you by my Perimenopause Body Image Confidence Starter Pack. If you're loving what you're learning in the podcast and you want to dive deeper into this work, this is a great way to get started. It's a little collection of tools that I've created that you can start applying today to help you feel more confident when it comes to your body as you navigate this transition. It's free and it's available right now. Just head to the show notes or to michellecapula.com forward slash starter to get instant access today. Today, I'm sharing my conversation with my colleague and friend, Dr. Megan McKinnon. She's a naturopathic doctor who has a clinical focus in perimenopause and menopause care. She's also a naturopath who has her prescribing license, so she can and often does prescribe pharmaceutical hormone replacement solutions for her patients. As someone who is highly experienced in both the conventional and alternative approaches to treating perimenopause, I wanted to bring her on to have a conversation about hormone replacement therapy or HRT. There are so many myths and bits of misinformation that have become part of the common conversation about HRT, and she does a great job answering some of the most common questions. We talk about what is hormone replacement therapy in the context of perimenopause and menopause, what's the difference between conventional HRT and bioidentical hormone therapy, when is it appropriate to seek treatment, does HRT cause cancer, and of course we discuss how socialization and culture and media shape our relationship to all of this. Before I share my conversation with Dr. Megan, I want to offer her professional bio. Dr. Megan is a women's health and hormone naturopathic doctor and a North American certified menopause practitioner. She's on a mission to help women feel their best at all stages of life and especially passionate about supporting women in perimenopause through to postmenopause and beyond. She's the creator of multiple programs and online trainings, including Master Your Metabolism, You, Me, and MHT, Menopausal Hormone Therapy, and The Pause Prescription, which are all designed to help you educate and empower you to feel confident in what really matters when it comes to your health now and 10 years in the future. She takes an evidence-based, comprehensive, and integrative approach to treatment by investigating all factors contributing to health and well-being using lab testing to help guide assessment and treatment. She maintains a private practice in Aurora, Ontario, and sees one-on-one patients virtually from anywhere in Ontario, Canada. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Megan McKinnon. Hello, Dr. Megan McKinnon. Thank you so much for being here on Perimenopology with us. Thank you, Michelle. I'm so excited to be here and have this conversation today. I know we've been trying to like coordinate a lot and we finally got it in the calendar. So that feels really No, it's good. It's an accomplishment. I mean, we're both very busy clinically speaking. So it's nice to be able to carve out some time to have a conversation because you know what? I also really like you and I like working with you. So this is really good. We could just like chat all day if you want. (laughs) 100%. So I've already read your professional bio in the intro to the episode, but I'd love to hear how you got started with your focus on perimenopause and menopause in your work. Yeah, I think, you know, I, um, I've been in practice now for, I think I'm in my 12th year, if I count back. And, you know, like a lot of practitioners, I think when you get first get started, you're just 
kind of treating lots of different things. Um, at least that's how, you know, a lot of my colleagues also graduated and landed out in the world. I had a pretty strong focus in women's health from the get-go, and I did treat a lot of fertility um, earlier in my career. Um, and then I think what just started happening is those patients that I was helping to have babies just started all getting older. Um, and, you know, I also started getting older and we were all just kind of almost evolving together. Um, and I really just saw um, a gap and also a huge opportunity in the way that we approach care for women in their you know, sometimes I say late 30s, but, you know, really it's through our 40s um, in terms of the the depth of the hormone change that is that are happening. And, you know, it, a lot of my patients were really feeling almost gaslit by their other care providers in terms of their experience and fingers were getting pointed in all other directions in terms of you're just stressed, you've got three kids, of course, you're busy, you know, you're working so much, you're taking care of hockey and soccer, or whatever it might be, that it just kind of left this space for women to feel a little bit deflated as it related to their health experience. So I dove in like I do with anything that I get really excited about and just invested an insane amount of time educating myself, deepening my understanding of how I can support women. And I guess the rest is history. Here we are. <laughs> I love that. So just for people who don't live in the province of Ontario, naturopathic doctors here are a licensed healthcare provider. Mm. Um, and so they get a basic level of education to be able to get their license to practice naturopathic medicine. And from there, they can choose to go and study extensively in a particular area. And that's exactly what Dr. Megan has done. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the extra programs that you've done to gain knowledge in this area? Yeah, I think a lot of it is, um, first of all, there's a little bit of mentorship in this conversation. And then it's a lot of reading and understanding the research. Um, I have gone through and done my um, what's called NAMS certification or North American Menopause Society certification, um, which is a you know highly trusted evidence-based source for guiding women's decisions in terms of um I guess, transitioning their symptoms and, you know, treatments for and support for women in perimenopause as well as menopause. So I have that extra, you know, training as well that I always kind of go back to. I'm logged into their site somewhat often and I direct a lot of patients to their site too to get extra resources and um, information. I love that. And one thing that I think is interesting to chat about, because that's kind of our, the point of our conversation today is that you've actually challenged an extra exam to be able to prescribe certain medications to people as well. So pharmaceutical medications. It depends on where like naturopathic doctors are in terms of what their scope is. So it's very different in Canada. It's different province to province. And in the States, it's different state to state, depending on um, their regulation. But in Ontario, um, you have to pass an exam to be able to be what is called a prescribing naturopathic doctor. Um, right. And so there's there's going to be some naturopathic doctors who haven't jumped through all of those hoops and uh, maintained that license. And then there's going to be some who have. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's part of the reason why that makes you so special in that you can offer lots of different options to your patients depending on what they feel most called to do, what seems most appropriate for them at the time, what they intuitively think is best for them. And then of course, what the evidence says. And I think it's such a beautiful, practical presentation of what I talk about a lot, which is that there's no hierarchy of treatment Mm. approaches. I think that a lot of people in the natural alternative community really talk down about pharmaceutical solutions and then vice versa. People from the conventional medical community will sometimes say, well, there's no evidence behind herbs or supplements, or there isn't enough research, so I don't trust it. And I love that you have such a broad experience with both of these methods and you use them beautifully individually or as a mix together. And so I think you're the perfect person to kind of debunk some of the myths around HRT, which is what we're hoping today. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask a first question right out, which is something that you suggested, uh, which is something that I was just talking about, which is that bias with treatment. Different practitioners yeah. will have different biases towards certain solutions. And so there's this opinion or myth that it isn't natural to use pharmaceutical therapies to treat mm-hmm. perimenopausal symptoms. So what are your thoughts on it not being natural or being natural? Tell us about that. I feel like you could have a whole podcast episode talking about this because it really kind of gets into, I think, natural health culture in terms of like even that word natural or clean or green or whatever it might be. It's all kind of part of that same conversation in terms of compared to what, Um, which it can be, I think, challenging when we've been kind of presented these two visions of what our health can be and look like based on um, lumping all treatments under this uh, idea and concept that um, treating symptoms is bad, which is, I think, that does a strong disservice to women to think that managing symptoms and that the way that you feel is uh, not a good choice. When we actually think about um, treating root cause, that can be messy and it can take a long time because there's a lot of, you know, sometimes I refer to them as ingredients. There's a lot of ingredients that make up wherever we're at with our health currently. And I personally believe in a very strong multifaceted approach to addressing root cause, which usually has a lot to to do with stress management, sleep support, nutrition, like all of these pieces. So that's not going to happen and get people better fast. So sometimes I think that we can Um, And I'm using this like general we in terms of, you know, air quotes around that downgrade the woman's current experience as to what she's having happen um, in terms of making her feel like she has to go do all of this stuff to be able to feel better when the system is kind of set up for women to not have a lot of time, energy, space to even do that sort of stuff. So it's um, that messaging kind of bothers me. Also, like a natural treatment can still suppress symptoms too or manage symptoms. So, you know, if we're, we'll use, I can use hot flashes as an example, since we're kind of chatting a little bit about menopause, perimenopause, but what is the giant difference 
if we're talking about treating somebody's hot flashes with a supplement versus a pharmaceutical, both of them are about managing symptoms. It's not that anything is wrong or broken that needs to be fixed with that supplement. Yeah, 100%. And I think that it gets to this deeper idea that we there's really this moralization around being able to do a quote unquote naturally, like all of those lifestyle medicine practices that you talked about earlier. So optimizing sleep and looking at nutrition and movement and all of those things that you can do on an individual basis. It's almost seen as morally superior to be able to just use those types of approaches and be able to quote unquote avoid medications. Mm-hmm. But sometimes our bodies are going through a process that doesn't mean that there's actually anything going wrong. It's just a normal part of a transition that a human body mm-hmm. goes through, but the symptoms can be un- unpleasant. And so it's a perfectly valid choice to just be mm-hmm. like, no, I want to take some medication to make my hot flashes a little bit less torturous. Mm-hmm. Well, and we run into bias as practitioners and we run into bias as patients or as individuals, right? Because you know the woman who I'm working with has her own story that she's kind of created about what she's deciding or not deciding to do. And so does the practitioner. So a practitioner who doesn't potentially recommend hormones is not going to have a conversation with you about hormones because they don't have the, well, they might not, I think that they should, but um, they might not have that talk where, you know, the the whole saying about if you only have a hammer, you're going to see a nail. So, uh, you know, personally, I think that it's our responsibility to, have that big conversation about various options, even if they're not technically within our scope, um, to say things like, you know, well, I know my my colleagues, got, like the obstetrician gynecologist, are going to be talking about X, Y, or Z in this situation. Go have a conversation with them. This is what we're talking about here. And helping the patient to create that roadmap for themselves so that they can understand um if they do have bias that's coming into that dialogue, that they can see that for what it is and almost um, get more clear in terms of what their goals are. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, that shouldn't be an extra approach to care. Like that's just basic informed yeah. consent. Exactly. As in, these are all the options, yeah. including doing nothing. These are the risks and benefits. If yeah. it's out of my scope to advise you on something, then here's somebody that you can go see. Yeah. So, I love this conversation, but I also want to take it back to, let's talk about hormone replacement therapy. It's pretty well known that that's an option for menopause, but Mm -hmm. I don't know if people actually understand what it is. So can you give us the Coles notes of what that means? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, in terms of semantics, I think that the term hormone replacement therapy is used most commonly, or sometimes it's referred to as HRT. Um, when, you know, I think in terms of our conversation today, we're talking a lot more about menopausal hormone therapy, or sometimes we'll short form that into MHT. Because really, you know, when we're thinking about it, it's more of an umbrella term. And then, you know, underneath that umbrella, there are various, um, I'm going to call it like treatment approaches and things for various conditions that fall under that broader category of HRT. So really what menopausal hormone therapy support is, is it's using, um, you classically, we'll, we're just talking here about estrogen and progesterone therapy to help to support a woman's symptoms and her experience with her perimenopause or, and or menopause journey. 
Okay. And so when you're talking about the hormones or the delivery itself, what types of methods do people use to take those uh, hormones? Yeah. So again, if we come back to this vision of hormone therapy being an umbrella term, um, there's a lot of tools in that toolbox that fall into the category or the descriptive term of hormone therapy. So, uh, you know, sometimes this is where you see my bias kind of sneak in. I refer to some of the forms in that hormone therapy toolbox as being the old school ways that hormones were delivered and prescribed. So, you know, lots of um, like oral forms of estrogen, um, synthetic forms of estrogen, synthetic forms of progesterone exist underneath that umbrella. And then we have the quote unquote, more natural or, you know, bioidentical versions of estrogen and progesterone that also exist under that umbrella. Um, I know in some places in the world, they call them more body identical. And really what that means is we're just seeing the exact form of estrogen or estradiol in the prescription or progesterone in the prescription versus what sometimes will get called um, a progestogen or a type of drug that's been made to look like a progesterone molecule or a type of drug that's been made to um, kind of look like our own body's natural estrogen molecule. Okay, got it. And so just to clarify, the objective with both of these medications looks the same. So they're both for treating certain menopausal symptoms or perimenopausal symptoms. So whether you choose the quote unquote old school one or the bioidentical one or the body identical one, it's still the same outcome that the practitioner is looking for. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in terms of the prescribing physician, they all kind of exist in that toolbox of options to be able to consider in terms of supporting a woman. Um, You know, part of the reason you know, I jokingly said that here comes my bias showing through there is that we've like, again, this is not me, I've not been doing these research studies, but you know, whoever has been doing these research studies, bless their hearts on hormone therapy for the last, let's just say 40 years, like that's the data that's all been collected. And, you know, I call it the, the hormone therapy research bucket. And all of that research has been going into this one big bucket. And so the, the great thing with that is that we have a lot of research on hormone therapy. The challenging thing with it is we have like all of it in that bucket, including um, some of those older forms and older methods of delivery for hormones lumped into that same bucket as some of the um, more, um, I guess, I'm going to call them newer or more, more thoughtful ways of how we might prescribe and deliver hormone therapy all in there together. So we have a lot of data, but the challenge then becomes that different hormones are sometimes going to have different level of risk and benefit. And that becomes the big conversation that we want to have with women in terms of do we decide or not decide to use hormones to support how we're experiencing our perimenopause and menopause is balancing that risk versus benefit for each individual. Sure, of course. So can you talk a little bit more about the difference between the two? I know you already said one is, um, well, you already explained the difference, but I've heard 
of both in conversations where people talk about bioidentical hormones being the more quote unquote natural way of doing it. And Mm -hmm. it seems in the conversation that people are saying it's better, it's less risky, it's Mm -hmm. more gentle, it's more natural. Would you agree with those statements or do you have other thoughts on it? There are some things that we know um, in terms of let's just use estrogen um, in isolation for a moment. So there are some things that we know um, are potentially better and less risky when we use a bio-identical or a body-identical version of estradiol that's delivered topically. So the difference here is more in the method of application, less in what it is that you're actually taking as the ingredient. Um, And, you know, the main part of that conversation is um, similar to when we think about, you know, risks of the birth control pill from a clotting potential. So when we think about some of the risks of oral birth control pill, a lot of people connect with the idea of blood clots, cardiovascular stuff, stroke, and, and that becomes something that gets a lot more risky as women age and get older when their own cardiovascular risk starts to sometimes go up. So we know that oral estrogen has some of those risks listed on its potential side effect. And we, um, we're fairly confident when we deliver and you know administer progesterone topically through the skin as like a patch, a gel, or a cream that it does not affect some of those side effects or risks. So that is a good, a general, generalized good statement. But it it really does depend on what it is we're actually talking about. We can't just say, oh, natural hormone therapy is easy peasy, lemon squeezy, like give it to everybody. It still does mean that we need to have this conversation about risk versus benefit, even when we're talking about the natural bioidentical forms. Of course. Yeah. I mean, individualized medicine really is the key because one thing that worked for somebody won't work for another and there's no universal solution that works for everybody. So again, I always tell people, if you're going to do anything like this, don't order things off the internet. Please talk to a qualified (laughs) health practitioner that is licensed to provide whatever you're looking for in your province or state. There's my little disclaimer for the day. (laughs) So I put the word out on social media for questions that people wanted me to ask you about hormone replacement therapy. And I had a lot of people write in and say, Hey, I think this is happening. I'm having some unpleasant side effects that are coming up. I'm the age that it would make sense that I'm in perimenopause, but my symptoms aren't so bad that it's significantly affecting my quality of life. And I think that's a theme that we come up against as women because our concerns are dismissed so frequently by our healthcare providers. So the question is, how early is too early? Can I still look at something like this as a potential solution, even if my symptoms are quote unquote mild? And of course, that's going to be a very subjective word to use, but that's the general thing that we're being Mm -hmm. asked. Yeah. You know, this is, um, this is where we kind of get into the nitty gritties of like the perimenopause hormone experience, which is, you know, your hormones start changing while you're still having regular periods and the experiences that we have can be due to perimenopause in terms of some of those early changes right but that doesn't necessarily mean oh my goodness early perimenopause has started i need to think about layering hormone therapy into the conversation this exact second 
my saying with perimenopause that I, I really like is the only rule with perimenopause is that there are no rules, which is kind of just this idea that we have to really keep our eyes wide open, but then also just stay the course, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm not worried about women who are having these conversations, listening to podcasts like this, because your eyes are wide open and you're paying attention to your body and you are aware of the symptoms that, you know, might be little signs that something is shifting. So I just think that we need to continue to have this conversation so we can address how, when, and what do we do about it. Um, to circle back to that theme around my symptoms are not that bad. That can be two things. That can be a woman really downgrading her own personal experience and telling herself what society has told her to suck it up. It's not important. Deal with it. Or it could be that it's really not that bad. And we don't mean to rush into anything major because, you know, we don't want to over medicalize every little blip along the way, we want to normalize that these ups and downs in one month can sometimes be weird. And then the next, next month, everything might level out depending on what else is going on in life, right? Yeah, I like that answer. Um, but also, I think it's important to just state, you know, if it's bad enough that you're not enjoying your life, or you're feeling yeah. uncomfortable in your body, at least have a consultation, at least ask for advice, at least talk to somebody who has expertise in this area because no, it's never too early to seek treatment no. for something that's bothering you in your body. And it's never too mild to ask for help. So if you're needing permission to reach out to somebody because there's something that isn't working for you or that you're not sure about or that you're worried about, it's always okay to do that. It's never oh, too totally. early. Totally. Totally. I have lots of women in my practice who are like, am I there yet? They're like waiting for the welcome sign. <laughs> they want to like, know. And, uh, you know, it's, um, I think, and again, you know, sometimes it's just providing a little bit of a space to have that conversation about like, let's check in again in you know, four months and see how the next, how the next little bit goes once you have some like goals and markers that you're going to be paying attention to and watching for. But um, no, having a preventative approach to this conversation, I think is really, really important. Because if you're like, there are a lot of what I'm going to call non menopause savvy practitioners out there who will have women, you know, come to them with their concerns and their complaints. And they'll be like, Oh, you're not even there yet, girl. Like I've actually like, that's a common experience that a lot of my patients will say to them, which again, makes them feel like they're going crazy, which is not okay. Um, or I've had patients actually go requesting hormones from their other practitioners to help treat and support some of their symptoms. And then their practitioners will say things like, oh, you're, you're not there yet, as though they're waiting for this other magical signal to tell them that, oh, now is time, which is just like, that's not supported by research or founded in data in terms of how we think about hormone therapy and how we use that. That's the practitioner's own lack of knowledge or their own bias about care being too risky. 
I love that. And so what I'm hearing you say is that it's never too early to ask the questions. Just because the age isn't where it quote unquote should be doesn't mean that you can't have a conversation. And also you don't have to wait till it gets really bad to seek help. Because I think that's yeah. another trait that people socialized as women have is that they, they're basically waiting until they're tortured and can't function to go and mm-hmm. seek help for their health issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I will say like, if we're circling back to the conversation about hormone therapy in particular, like the two main gold standard, like stamped, sealed, approved treatments for hormone therapy are going to be for treatment of hot flashes and night sweats, as well as prevention of osteoporosis. So like those are kind of what are, I'm going to call them kind of like always hanging out in the practitioners back of their brain in terms of signs and signals that we're like getting into that zone. Like there are some women who have an early menopause experience where their body will become full menopausal or no period for one year in their early 40s, right? And, uh, you know, the changes that are happening to lead up to that point are all happening in this time, which, you know, your other practitioner might say, oh, you're too young or you're not even there yet. So you really do need to tune into your own instincts and your own bodies to ask those questions because everyone is going to be very different. So next question. Mm-hmm. A lot of people talk about hormonal blood work. Tell us your thoughts about blood serum levels of hormones. Is that an effective way to gauge where somebody is? Is it reliable? Is it useful? Give Mm -hmm. us all the info. Yeah. Um, So I kind of have two ways of looking at this and having this conversation. One way is that every single treatment guideline that exists for the management of symptoms with perimenopause and or menopause um, mostly says do not test labs. And the reason it says this is because one month can be so different to the next month. So, you know, I think that's an important thing to understand because I know a lot of women come to see me and they're feeling angry and frustrated because they've maybe been to their family physician and their family physician has denied them blood work because or they've, you know, rolled their eyes and checked it off, but like they've had a negative experience surrounding the do we order or not order labs. So I think that that's an important kind of thing to be thinking about. And, you know, this is really in the woman's best interest, because even if I were to order labs, and let's just say one month, we see all of your hormone levels look you know, beautiful, crystal clear in terms of where I want them to be in expected reference ranges. For all I know, you're going home and the next month, everything is like in a totally different spot. So if I just told you, you're good, don't worry about it based on these labs, that doesn't necessarily validate the experience that you're having in other months because, you know, I always joke about how we haven't invented the hormone detector where we're going to have these probes. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm joking, but it's also, I think if someone's listening to this and they have that power to <laughs> invent something like this, I'm in. Um, we don't know. So like that, that to me is an important distinction. But, you know, this all being said, there is a time and a place to sometimes check a woman's hormones. I do believe that it can help to validate a woman's experience. It's more about making sure that you're using your thinking brain as a practitioner or as a patient to be like, 
this person just put me on this entire supplement plan or protocol treatment strategy all years towards this one test I did on this one random day of a given month. Because that does not necessarily mean that that's the appropriate thing for you in terms of the next six months to a year. Um, you know, some of the other kind of weird parts of that question about blood work is that there there is a time and a place to test labs to be able to see um, if we are kind of entering into more of that early menopause zone um, or um, that we're experiencing some of those later shifts from a perimenopause standpoint towards menopause. So that's really one of the only kind of main main goals of testing labs. Or we can also do a check to see, did the woman ovulate this month or not? If that matters, that doesn't necessarily always matter from the perspective of your experience with your symptoms over the course of a long period of time. So just for our information, Mm -hmm. what are some of the signs that you as a practitioner would have you say, hey, if this happens or if this happens or this happens, give Mm -hmm. me a call and we'll talk about perimenopause. Yeah. Um, So for me, when I have women who are experiencing cycle changes, so if their periods were always, you know, very straightforward, let's just say every, you know, 28, 29 days, manageable blood flow, all of that sort of stuff. If all of a sudden periods start getting really, really heavy, that's to me a little bit of a signal that those hormone changes have started. Um, If cycles start to get closer together, so if we used to be 28-day, 29-day cycles, and now all of a sudden we're getting closer to 21 and getting a period every three weeks, that's another signal. Um, Sometimes it's skipping a cycle too, or having a longer flow. So we do need to pay attention to all of those menstrual things. Um, And sometimes this is just heaviness, like in terms of new onset of fibroids or more gushing as it relates to our flow bleeding through protection, where that never used to be a problem. Um, Some of the more stealth things that make me think perimenopause changes are going to be changes with mood. Um, sometimes this can be perceived as a worsening of PMS or just mood being off in general, worsening sleep or more insomnia can be a little signal or like a little flag to me. Um, sometimes even joint pain, that's always one that is like the dark horse. And, you know, usually that's going to show up a little bit more later in the perimenopause transition. Sometimes libido changes can be involved with this, um, you know, vaginal dryness or discomfort with intercourse can be a sign that hormones have made a little bit of a change there too. And then of course, the all famous hot flashes and night sweats conversation, you know, we have to make sure that we're talking about that in this conversation as it relates to menopause changes. Of course. And just to reiterate again, Perimenopause, I think there's this myth and it's probably derived from all of these memes or possibly stories that we heard from our mothers or older generations that it it kind of seems like it just appears out of thin air one day mm. and all of a sudden you're losing your mind and erupting in heat all the time. But a lot of people's experience in perimenopause tends to be this gradual onset. Mm-hmm. And so when you're looking for these symptoms that you mentioned earlier, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden overnight a switch flipped. No, it, it can be mild of an onset yeah. as well. And you know, some of those stealth 
things like mood and sleep, like these can be other things still too, right? Um, which sometimes makes the conversation challenging because you've kind of got this mishmash of symptoms and we're trying to tease apart, well, what's the hormone involvement here? What's this? And how are we going to you know, come up with the way to best support where that individual is? Right. And of course, seeing somebody who is who has extra continuing education, who has extra qualifications, particularly in this area of focus, is going to be able to ask you the questions to get the answers that you're looking for at the most efficient rate. So Mm -hmm. I always recommend seeing somebody who is either, I mean, in Ontario, we can't be specialized, but I know that there are places where you can, or somebody who at least has extensive experience treating what you're looking to be treated for, because they'll be able to ask you those really great questions to be able to get a little bit closer and a little bit closer to the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I like the way you put it about stuff happening kind of gradually, right? So like it circles back to what you're saying at the beginning, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's more of a conversation of, well, what's next? Like how many little things are going to start to add up to like allow us to actually start paying attention? Yeah. And how long do we let it go before we seek treatment? And that's going to be a highly individual question. I always say that if you want to seek treatment for something that's going on with your body, that in and of itself is reason enough. You don't need any other reason other than I want to, or I feel like it's time. Totally. Yeah. So I have a couple of rapid fire questions for you to end out the episode and then we'll chat about where people can find you online. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. (laughs) Give them to me. (laughs) Okay. First one. What's the acronym that you use for menopause specific? MHT. MHT. Okay. So let's use that. Does MHT cause cancer? Oh dear. I can't say just yes or no to that. I have to give more explanation. (laughs) Totally fine. Have at it. Okay, I'm going to give the really short version of this. And if people are interested in having this conversation in a deeper way, definitely you can connect with me um, outside. The big question here is always around breast cancer. So we can't just generalize and say cancer in particular, because we actually have some evidence of hormone therapy helping with our cancer risk for things like colon cancer or reducing our cancer risk for colon cancer. Essentially, you know, we have some data that shows that there may be an increased risk with hormone therapy and breast cancer. And where that conversation has to really go into depth is in terms of, well, what does that increased risk look like? Um, Because in general, it's a very, very small increased risk. So we have to have these conversations so that the each individual can immediately kind of say, all right, well, where are those potential benefits? Because what we do know, and like there's been research that's looked at this as well, is that um, medicine and media do a really, really good job at talking about risk of hormones to women. Because most people have this like big looming question mark in their head when it comes to hormone therapy. What women don't know is all of the research on the benefits. Sometimes when we can kind of have that immediate, oh my gosh, like even if it causes, you know, even if it increases my risk this much, well, I'm not even going to have that talk. People kind of put their wall up and it goes into almost defensive or reactive mode when, you know, one little thing is inched forward on that conversation, which I don't think is doing women any service when it comes to her health. 
Oh my gosh, I'm giving you way a longer answer. <laughs> Not yes or no. That's I have a totally bit fine. More. Is that okay? I yeah, that's okay. Um, like we do have research on the um, bioidentical forms of hormone therapy not increasing our cancer risk, but that study was done for four to five years, and then we don't have research beyond that. So because we go back to that hormone bucket of research, we can say with pretty good confidence, hormone therapy does not increase cancer risk for short-term use up to five years. Beyond that, it may increase our cancer risk very smallly um, or very minimally, I should say. And to put it into perspective, it's roughly the same level of increase as taking a birth control pill. And it's roughly the same increase as drinking alcohol semi-regularly. So like a glass or two a day would be at the same level of increased risk of breast cancer. So when we think about cancer risk, we do need to put, again, all of those pieces in together to come up with what what does that look like for us? I love that explanation, especially that comparison at the end with, well, it's about the same amount of risk as if you had a couple of glasses of wine, Mm -hmm. you know, over time, mm-hmm. over many years, that and, totally you know, makes I, sense. I do think that each woman ha- gets to make that decision, right? So I'm very yeah. careful to think that, like, just because I am doing this risk benefit conversation, doesn't this is not about me, right? Like, this is about what do you think? Like, because you know, if it increases your, I think the the number, and this might not be perfect, but I think it's an extra four in a thousand women. Okay, so. No one wants to be that for women. How do you feel about that benefit risk conversation? And there are lots of good resources that I direct people to, to help them to kind of think through that in a different way. Um, but yeah, it's it's part of it. So if you're going to say no to something because of it increasing your cancer risk, and we know obesity also is a massive increased risk factor for breast cancer, drinking alcohol is a massive increased risk of breast cancer. How do we feel about those? Yeah, I think that's so interesting to kind of take a step back and look at the cultural influences and how it's so context dependent. Because if we're looking at the same numbers, the same math in terms of increasing somebody's risk, um, it's their a person's reaction to that increased risk is going to be influenced based on their socialization, based on their upbringing, based on religious conditioning, based on how the media portrays something. Because yeah, I mean in the media, you're seeing Samantha from Sex in the City go crazy and lose her hormone replacement therapy at the border when she's trying to get into wherever they went on their overseas uh, expedition. And it <laughs> just it was Abu Dhabi. <laughs> it was Abu Dhabi versus they're in the bar drinking cocktails every night of the week. So mm-hmm. it's highly influenced by what media and culture says is acceptable and what's not acceptable. Such totally. an interesting conversation. It okay. Is. So that was yeah. not a rapid fire question, <laughs> no, but that's okay. <laughs> um, all right. Next question. Does MHT stop working if you use it too much or for too long? No, this also circles back to what are we talking about with the word working, right? Like, so if we're using it to say, like, treat your hot flashes and night sweats, which again, is one of those gold standard treatments. And let's just pretend you're one of those people where it makes them go away altogether. Um, and not everyone is that way. Sometimes it will give us a you know really strong reduction without making them disappear. But, um, you know, if that's the main intention and goal, then sometimes a woman may choose to stop hormone therapy and 
um, maybe her hot flashes are gone and she's happy. Sometimes hot flashes will come back and that just tells us that her hot flashes were not done. Okay, got it. Is there such thing as being quote unquote too young for MHT? I know we answered this a little bit earlier. I well, this is this depends on where a woman is at on that perimenopause journey, right? And knowing that, you know, we have a condition called um premature ovarian insufficiency or POI, which is you can also kind of think about this as, you know, an earlier onset menopause, but it's actually a menopause before the age of 40. So we know that if a woman goes into menopause before 40 and her menstrual periods have stopped altogether, it's um, very, very well established and accepted that her risk benefit analysis in terms of hormone therapy or not using hormone therapy weighs heavily in the benefit. It's considered very bad practice to not have a conversation with the woman about prescribing hormones if she goes into an earlier menopause. And the reason for that is some of those other benefits that we didn't really even spend too much time talking about, which is going to be, um, you know, prevention of osteoporosis and prevention of cardiovascular disease. So we do know that estrogen has a protective role. So in that situation, it's never too early. But we also don't want to just go give hormones to all women in their early 40s. So I think we're coming back to that place again, where we say, yeah, it's a nuanced conversation. Talk to an expert. So if people are wanting more of this goodness and want to come and follow you and learn more from you, where can they find you? Yeah, I, I probably hang out on Instagram the most, um, more in my stories than as I relate to posts. But um, you can find me there. I'm at uh, Dr. D-R Meg, M-E-G-M-A-C-K-I-N-N-O-N, Dr. Meg McKinnon, dot N-D. Um, and I have a, a women's health education group that I call the pause prescription that um I'm going to be accepting enrollment for again. So, uh, you know, you can always follow me there to learn more about that and get on the list to gain extra information about the transition in our health at perimenopause. Awesome. I will make sure that I link all of that in the show notes so people can find it and click it easily. Dr. Megan, thank you so much for coming here and chatting with us and sharing your wisdom and your expertise. No problem. It's been fun. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks so much for joining me for my conversation with Dr. Megan. If you're interested in connecting with her, please find and follow her on social media. I'll link it all up in the show notes. I'll be back next week with another episode and thanks for listening. If you are loving what you're learning in the podcast and you want to take this work to a deeper level, let's work together. If you are a resident of Ontario, Canada, we can work together in a clinical setting, both virtually or in person. Or if you want help managing your mind around the perimenopausal transition and supercharging your self-confidence and body image, I can help you anywhere in the world through coaching. To learn more about your options for working with me, head to michellekepler.com and click on work with me on the overhead menu. I can't wait to talk with you.